We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I'm your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today is in the Baseball Hall of Fame. He ranks 10th all-time in hits and is one of only five men to hit 300, get 3,000 hits, and steal 500 bases in his career. In 1993, he was standing on first base when Joe Carter hit one of the most iconic home runs in baseball history and he was named MVP of that series. And a very good argument could be made that he is one of the most, if not the most, clutch postseason players of all time. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. Paul Molitor. Paul, welcome. Yeah, I appreciate that. Good to be with you here this morning. Good. Well, hey, Paul, I, um, I always like to just kind of jump into an athlete's background first, you know, a little bit about, you know, kind of where they're from and how they developed their love for the game and, and, you know, even the high school years, you're from St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, and you're one of eight kids kind of right in the middle. And you went right. to Creighton high school, which I want to talk about for a second. And you were a soccer, basketball and baseball player. Tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of growing up in St. Paul and, you know, kind of in that era uh, and, and, uh, and your years at Creighton. Well, I, I appreciate going back in history a little bit. It's kind of fun to reminisce, but I did grow up in a large family in St. Paul, and uh, I had six sisters, so it gave me a lot of reasons to get out of the house to go play sports. But, uh, you know, just great memories. St. Paul, a community that really is, um, you know, family-oriented, uh, a lot of opportunities for families to flourish in whatever way they see possible. My high school years at Creighton were some of my best memories I had in terms of just a phase of life, uh, the opportunity to play three high school sports. We were uh, full of talent. You know, I, I played on state championship teams in soccer, basketball, and baseball, and uh, I just really have good memories of that. I, I just give my parents a lot of credit for a lot of the things that I learned as a young kid. Raising eight kids is not an easy thing to do. My dad certainly taught me about work ethic and uh, what it takes to be successful. 
and for my mom, you know, to, to try to shepherd eight kids and, and keep them fed and everybody happy and on track was sure a monumental project. But yeah, I could go on a long time about the Twin Cities and, and my time growing up here, but certainly it's a very fond chapter of my life. Yeah. And and a lot has been made about kind of St. Paul and the legacy of of, you know, kind of baseball players that have come from there. And I know you guys are all off just a little bit in age, but you're all kind of the same vintage. Dave Winfield, Jack Morris, and you, all three in the Hall right. of Fame, all three grew up in a very, you know, kind of pretty close area, all within a couple of miles, um, uh, three different high schools, and but all three ultimately did play for the Twins, all three sure. ultimately win World Series, uh, not with the Twins, Jack did, of course, but, um, and all three end up in the Hall of Fame. Um, t tell me just a little bit about that. You know, like, did that, I, I read somewhere that Dave Winfield making it to the majors from the University of Minnesota had a, had an impact on you. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I, I, a couple of responses to that. You know, um, I think that as a community, St. Paul is proud to have three Hall of Famers. You know, we're not ne necessarily known as a baseball hotbed. You're more likely to find guys in the NHL than MLB. But, uh, you know, in Dave's case, we grew up literally about five blocks apart, played on the same playgrounds, but he was always just that one phase ahead of me. So when he was a, a senior in high school, I was an eighth grader. When he was a senior at the University of Minnesota, I was a senior in high school. So we kind of always just missed in those days. But when Dave made the jump from the University of Minnesota straight to the major leagues with the Padres, it was very impactful for to me for me because it kind of reinstilled the hope that Minnesota isn't necessarily a roadblock to fulfilling your dreams in baseball. And um, our our careers paralleled in so many ways. We both went to Toronto to win our first World Series. We both came back to Minnesota to get our three thousand hit. In fact, it was on the same date, September sixteenth, which is almost crazy. So a lot of good parallels with Dave. You know, Jack and I were a little bit closer in age. He was a year older than me, but we played against each other a lot in, in both high school basketball, baseball, American Legion baseball. And uh, he went away to BYU, and the next time I saw him was in a Tigers uniform. So so that was pretty cool. And also um, uh, instilled hope for myself. And the, and the last part that I'll add to that um, we got a chance to add a fourth in Joe Maurer. Uh, he's, he's due to come up for the vote this January. I'm not sure if he'll get right in right away, but I expect that he will eventually. Um, Joe went to my high school and I used to joke that, you know, someday when I'm talking to my grandkids, they're going to tell me that other than Joe Maurer, you might've been the best player to come out of Creighton high school. So um, we're, we're, we're hoping to welcome Joe into that fraternity as well. Um, hopefully in the near future. Yeah. And, and you mentioned Creighton. So Creighton High School is, for, for the listener who might not be totally familiar with, you know, high schools in St. Paul, Minnesota, Creighton, now, now Creighton Durham Hall, is one of the most exceptional high schools, sports-wise, certainly, that I've ever heard of. So it's you and Joe Maurer, right. Ryan McDonough, who captained the Lightning to a couple Stanley Cups, Steve Walsh, who wins a national title for Jimmy Johnson at Miami, Chris Wenke, right. who wins national title and the Heisman at Florida State. Matt Burke, who, you know, starts in the NFL for like 12 years, always in the Pro Bowl. Right. Um, I mean, the legacy is insane. And I have to ask you this question. It's a Catholic high school, but also a military high school. And I, I, I've never been able to kind of figure that part out. Can you explain that? 
Uh, well, I, I think you did a really nice job of profiling some of the great athletes to come out of there in various sports. Um, certainly, they had a nice run on the quarterbacks there for a while. Um, and I think Joe Maurer could have added to that because he was offered the full a full ride to be a I think in Florida State down there. Um, he was a national player of year uh, of the year in in high school football. Um, but you know, I I, I just think that um, we we kind of take a lot of pride in that the fact that Creighton has such a has a storied past in terms of athletes that it's produced. And uh, yeah, it, it, the whole military concept. I didn't know any difference. I think now when I talk to people, they they go, you went to a military high school? And I said, yeah, but it was kind of just a normal thing to do if you weren't going to go through public education. So, you know, we had to wear the military uniforms. We'd have inspections on Mondays. You'd have to shine your brass and your shoes and get your hair cut and just kind of follow the protocol from freshman year to your senior year. You There would be promotions. You would get in advanced in your rank. I think I retired as Lieutenant Colonel, which was second in command to our cadet colonel. So yeah, it was a good part. We certainly learned discipline along the way going through that program. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And and you mentioned the five straight state championships, which is you know insane. Um, was it always going to be baseball for you at the next level? Or were you also considering you know a soccer or a basketball? Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, the, the championships, um, my my junior year in baseball, which is in the spring, my senior year, we won soccer in the fall, basketball in the winter and baseball in the spring. And then that summer, we, we won the American Legion Championship, too. So we had a nice run of winning, to say the least. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just think that um, having experiences and, and learning how to win was, was kind of instilled in me back then. So um still have a lot of friends from back in those teams. So, you know, just, just a good, good memory for me to think back to those days. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then it's time to choose, a, 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 you know, a college. Yeah. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I, your, your question about, you know, other sports, I, I really wanted to play college basketball too. I thought I could maybe be a two way, two sport player. Um, I had some opportunities at smaller schools in Minnesota, you with your Minnesota knowledge, St. John's and some other local colleges were offering me an opportunity to play two sports, but I knew baseball was my best shot. And so I, I took the scholarship to the university of Minnesota and, and tried to advance my baseball career in that, in that fashion. So. Sure. And so you go to play for Dick Siebert at Minnesota and Siebert for, for the, you know, obviously a lot of people might not be totally familiar with the history of Minnesota baseball, he, he manages them, he coaches them for over 30 years, wins three college World Series in the 50s and 60s. So you're going to play for a legend. Um, what was that like playing? I mean, obviously, there's some challenges playing baseball in, in March in Minnesota, but what was that like playing uh, at the U? Well, you know, Dick Sieber, like, as you mentioned, maybe not a no name to a lot of people, but he was a very uh, legendary coach up here, after, you know, with the, with the tenure that he provided over those three decades, those national championships um what helped me as far as playing for dick what it was he, he was a stickler for fundamentals we didn't have a very good indoor facility we were in this dust bowl inside for two or three months before we would make our first trip to texas every year but what we did able what we were able to accomplish in that environment was you know whether it was bunting or defense or ground balls or situations cutoffs and relays we became really good at that because that's all we really could do in our indoor facility. And so I think fundamentally, as I progressed and through my college career, I, I was ready to play a game in, in a fashion that I could do the little things that make a good player, you know, 
be be a valuable asset to any coach. So when I came out and I finally signed after my junior year, um, I knew the game, I knew the fundamentals of the game, and I think that helped accelerate my climb eventually to the major leagues. Yeah, and, yeah, and and obviously a very successful run at Minnesota. You you qualified for the playoffs twice. You made it to the College World Series once. You're a, right. you're. A, all-American shortstop a couple of years running. You guys ultimately lose to Arizona State, which was loaded. I mean, those guys. They're loaded. Yeah, Chris Bando, Hubie Brooks, Bob Horner. I mean, it's it's a pretty stacked college baseball team. Um, and and so you get to, and one question about your time at the University of Minnesota. You, you, for the most part, overlapped with Tony Dungy. He was the quarterback of the football team there. Did you know Tony at the time? You know, I, I had met Tony a couple of times during that chapter of life. Uh, you know, he was uh, number nine. He was a starting quarterback. We all know about his career. He went on to play in the NFL as a defensive back before taking out some coaching roles, eventually winning that Super Bowl with the Colts. Um, but we got to know each other more so later on than our college years. Uh, Tony was a big part of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I remember him speaking at multiple baseball chapels that I was a part of throughout the years. And uh, even to this day, he is part of an event every year that we host at a church that I attend called uh, Rise Rise with the Guys that we usually correlate sometime around the Easter part of the year. So, uh, yeah, Tony, uh, it, it, not like we were real close friends, but certainly when we we see each other. It's, it's a nice pleasantry to exchange us. Just a nice, good conversation and some of the memories that we share together, including our time at the University of Minnesota. Sure. Uh, that's cool. That's cool. So so after your junior year, you've been at All-American shortstop a couple of years running. You, you're you drafted, I think, third overall in 77. And you go to by, by the Brewers and um, you go you spend that first year in Burlington, Iowa, in uh, a ball. Uh, and you you do well. I mean, you hit almost 350, you get 50 RBIs. Um, and the next year you're coming up and there's been a young guy who has been playing for the Brewers since he was like 18 at shortstop, Robin Yon. Right. And he, he is, and I remember this, he's holding out because, you know, I guess for pay or whatever, he um, he's deciding he's going to go play pro golf. And so you're kind of the, you know, the, the up and coming, you know, guy out of the farm system um and yaunt is not there so they put you in at shortstop what's that like kind of coming in you make the majors oh by the way that the, the existing star is off you know, trying to be a pro golfer and then comes back tell me a little bit about that well i, I uh, it, was, it was a really good draft in 77 harold baines was the first pick uh bill gullickson was second i was third and a, a really good catcher terry kennedy who played a long time in the major leagues i believe was the fourth pick um, but yeah, I did have that, that half a season in the Midwest league where I, where I was able to do well. And I was invited to major league spring training. I was part of your contract as a number one pick. And my aspirations were to just make a good impression, you know, go back to the minor leagues and hopefully, uh, when that door would open, I'd get an opportunity. And Robin, who I had met briefly, um, you know, was having a very, very good spring training, but near the end of spring training, um, he left camp and there was a lot of speculation about the pro golf, um, knowing Robin and now for, I don't know, 40 years or whatever it's been, it was a little bit about the golf, but a lot more of it was about his first four years in the major leagues between 18 and 22. They had lost, I think between 90 and hundred games every year. And I, I just think he wasn't sure that was the path that he wanted to stay on. 
And there might have been a little bit of an accident on his motorcycle that drove him out of that spring training, too, where he had a little bit of an injury. And that kind of maybe caused him some pause to think about what he actually wanted to do. But his misfortune was my blessing because I was scheduled to go back to AAA a week before the start of the season. And when Robin um, took a break from camp, I was returned to the major league side. And, you know, seven days later, I was opening day shortstop. So um, that little pause that he took was able to help me get my foot in the door at the major league level. That's amazing. Sometimes how those things happen, right? Just like a little window. Um, well, the, when, when you get your, you, you try to wedge it in there the best you can. I, I, I played short the first month. I did okay. Our second baseman, a young guy by the name of Lenny Sakata, was not doing great. And so when Robin came back, they just pushed me over to the other side of second base. And Robin and I stayed as a combination in the middle infield for a handful of years before some other positional changes took place. Yeah, yeah, which which we'll get into. But man, you 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 moved around a lot. I mean, you, you showed your dexterity uh, for that for that team over the years. Um, and George Bamberger is the manager, and, and you mentioned you know it, they had come in from Seattle, the Brewers about, you know, whatever, eight or nine years earlier, had lost every season, no no winning records. Bamberger comes in, He's he's his background is with the Baltimore Orioles, those winning teams and, you know, great pitching and all that. He comes in, you guys start hitting the ball out of the park. Uh, you know, guys like Ben Ogilvy and Cecil Cooper and Gorman Thomas. Um, what's, what's it like, you know, kind of looking around, you know, Sal Bando's joined that team from Oakland. What was it like, you know, kind of looking around that locker room and seeing some of those names? Well, it, it was huge, um, intimidating, to be honest with you. I, I remember my very first day of driving into the, our spring training facility in Sun City, Arizona. And, and um, ironically, Sal Bando and I pulled in at the same time. And I was well aware of Sal's three championships with the Oakland A's. He captained those teams and uh, uh, never had spoke to him, never met him. And next thing I know, by walking in, I'm shaking hands with the guy that I was very much uh, in respect of. So um, Bamberger coming over from Baltimore, uh, like you mentioned, he had great pitching during his time there as a pitching coach, 420 game winners in one year. And uh, we just had a lot of talented guys. So it was a little intimidating. I didn't fully expect to make the team. Like I said, I was just going to kind of keep my mouth shut, try to learn and hopefully, you know, put my name on the map for down the road. But as the spring unfolded, um, you could feel the chemistry start to build. I got the chance to start the season, as we previously discussed. And we just uh, found a way to start winning. You know, unfortunately, that first year, we, we won over 90 games. There was no wild card. There was no opportunity to advance unless you won the division. And it just happened to be the year where Boston and New York tied, and they had that famous Bucky Dent game to decide who advanced in the playoffs. But it was a really big stepping stone for the Brewers. It was their first winning season and kind of set us up for what was to follow in the next handful of years. Yeah. I mean, a 26 game turnaround, which I, I think I read was like the biggest turnaround ever or, or something close to that. Um, so, you know, obviously he brought something, um, uh, you know, from Baltimore and uh, and and was really helpful in helping like Mike Caldwell and Larry Sorensen, you know, kind of develop his pitchers. Um, and you're and you're producing, too. Um, yeah, I think that first year you have, you know, 45 RBIs and 30 stolen bases. And then the next year is another good year, another, you know, kind of over 90, uh, win season, 95 wins. Um, and Gorman Thomas goes off. He hits 45 homers that year. Uh, what was Gorman Thomas like in the locker room? The guy's kind of a legend. Yeah, he is kind of a legend. He, um, 
back then, you know, we see so many players today now with the longer hair and the beards and disheveled appearances that almost they take pride in that. Back in those Brewer days, we we had quite a few of those colorful type characters, and and he was definitely at the top of the list. And he had never really got an opportunity to be a regular player, but um, not only Bamberger, but Harry Dalton had come in as our general manager, and they told Gorman it was his job. Um, he he would have fit in today's game really well, strike out a ton, and hit him a mile, you know. But I think that one year, I when he I think he it was 45 or whatever it was, you know, we weren't seeing the, the 40 home run seasons very frequently, a little bit more so now, but yeah, that team was full of power. We had a, a lot of guys that could hit it out of, out of the park, you know, Ogilvy and Cecil and Robin, um, a, a really good mix of different players, certainly different personalities. We gelled well. It was tough to advance back then. Only four teams were in the postseason, So we had to find our way to climb to the top of the American league. American League East, and it took a couple of years to do that. Yeah, and, but and real fast. Speaking of personalities, the broadcaster, one of the broadcasters, is Bob Euchre. Right. <laughs> Tell me about. I mean, Euchre's been around forever. Tell me about. You know, what type of relationship did you or the team have with Euchre? Um, he he was fantastic. You know, my early years in Milwaukee were the years where Bob really started to blossom as a national personality. His appearances on Johnny Carson started to become legendary. Um, he, you know, he had the movie Major League. He had the sitcom that he was a part of, uh, Mr. Belvedere, the Miller Lite commercials. We still traveled probably almost 50% commercial back then. And no one ever wanted to talk to Robin Yount or Paul Molitor. They wanted the people in the airport. They wanted to talk to Bob Euchre. So he had uh, tremendous uh, public influence as far as just people recognizing him. And, you know, in terms of being around the club, he, he was just always fun. You know, he'd come in spring training in the mornings and he'd hold court and he'd tell stories and we'd get our day off to a good start. Um, he threw batting practice for us every day. He was locked in. You know, he likes to joke about his, uh, his career as a player, um, which really didn't amount to much, but he did get some big, big league time in, uh, in the Cardinals organization. Um, uh, to him and Tim McCarver were good buddies and catching guys like Bob Gibson. But yeah, you know, you to this day still doing the Milwaukee games. I think he's only doing the home games now after 50 years in the broadcast booth. But I really felt like it was a privilege to be around him day in and day out during my time in Milwaukee. Yeah. Just one of those legends. <laughs> and then, and then something kind of odd happens 1980. So you guys are winning, you know, every year you've been there, you guys are winning. George Bamberger, your manager has a heart attack. Uh, yeah. During the season, and and Buck Rogers has to come in. What's what is that? What's that like for a team to you know to have a manager you know kind of take ill like that? Well, um, it's impactful. Um, I think with things along our journey in life, every once in a while we're reminded of the fragility and how quickly things can change, and and maybe we have to reprioritize at times. Um, but we, I remember that we had a pretty good prognosis about them being able to take care of George, which they did, thankfully. Um, he went on to live quite a long time after that and stayed in the game. But, um, yeah, it was transitional for players and knowing that you were losing your leader. And, uh, you know, we did, we did have Buck Rogers come in for a while. Eventually, Harvey Keene took over, you know, when we went on to the World Series in 82. But, um uh, I just felt fortunate to play for all those guys. They all had an impact for me, the different styles, each and every one of them.
but you learn from all those guys if you pay attention that's for sure sure yeah and and so buck Rod- and yeah and it was like he has the heart attack buck rogers takes over he comes back at the end of the year but then decides right. you know needs needs a break so buck rogers is your manager in 81 and 81 is a strange year on the one hand it's the strike season right which is just you know left this you know massive void in the middle of the year but you guys are really good that year you go to the playoffs and it's under buck rogers um, tell me a little bit about that. Like, just like, you know, the psychology yeah. of it. And oh, by the way, bringing in Raleigh fingers. We, you know, the, the strike was, no, you know, we all knew it was a potentially going to happen, but when it does, it's still, um, you know, it's, it's pretty devastating that your season gets shut down. I think we lost like 50 games somehow during that time away from the game, MLB came up with this format that who was ever in first place at the time of the strike would advance to the playoffs and then whoever won the second half of the season would advance as well. And so the Yankees that were, the, were in first place during the strike, we came back and won the second half. So we had a matchup with them in 1981, five game series. Um, they came into Milwaukee and beat us two in a row. We go to New York. Uh, I'll always remember this because, you know, the dollars weren't as prevalent for clubs back then. So we check into a hotel in New York, check out the next day, go to the Yankee stadium. We win. Now we're down two to one check back into the hotel, next morning, check out, go to the ballpark, we win again, now it's 2-2, then we go back to the hotel, check back in, check out the next day, we come out in game five, I think Oscar Gamble and Reggie and a couple guys hit homers, and and uh, we fell a little bit short in that particular series. But first, first postseason experience for the Brewer franchise and uh, kind of set us up for what was to follow in 1982. Yeah, that's amazing. You guys checked in and out three times in three days. That's amazing. Um, right. And that year, you were actually playing some center field or a good amount of center field. Um, yeah, in uh, you know, in the my positional changes, <clears throat> I started short, went to second. Eventually, when Sal Banda retired, I moved to third. There was a year there where they were looking for me to move to center field and take Gorman Thomas out of center field and move him to a corner spot. And so I remember in the playoffs in 81, I was playing center field. Um, it wasn't until the following spring when I actually got moved over to third base full time. Okay. Okay. So yeah, so that so that so that 82 season is just a great season. You guys win 95 games. Harvey Keene is the manager because early on in the year, a little bit of a struggle out of the gate. Buck Rogers, I don't know if he's let go or he resigns, but Harvey Keene takes over. Was that a bit of a shock for the team? You know, you've kind of gone through a couple of managerial changes, even though you guys are winning. Um, what's it like when Harvey takes over? Well, I think we were about 45 games into the season and we were coming off with 81. So expectations were high and we were hovering around 500. And, uh, I, I, um, I think Buck Rogers really knew the game. He, um, he might've been a little bit too strict for the loose personality veteran club that we had in 82. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think Harry Dalton just decided that we need a little bit of a personality change at the top more than anything. And that's when Buck was let go and, and Harvey came in sometime probably in June. And, uh, you know, we ended up winning, you know, in the nineties again. So that last hundred, 110 games, we really took off to put ourselves in a position to win that uh, division and move on to the playoffs against the angels. And, and yeah. Harvey was a perfect fit for, you know, he was, I don't know. I I think he just wrote down the same lineup every day as best as best as he could, and he just tried to stay out of our way. And uh, between a great offense, enough starting pitching, and Raleigh Fingers on the back end, it was a pretty good formula for success. 
Yeah. Har- Harvey's wall bangers, right? You guys hit like 216 home runs, yeah. which at the time, I don't know if that was the record at the time, but it's certainly in the conversation uh, for one of well, the most. You know, t- 200, 200 home run seasons were fairly rare back then. You know, it was just uh, maybe four years ago when both the Yankees and the Twins hit over 300 home runs, Twins breaking the record. And I think Texas or somebody might have had 300 again this year. So the bar has changed as the game has changed in terms of what a what a team's home run output looks like in terms of a successful season. I I think the percentage of runs scored in baseball is close to 50 percent now on home runs. Where back then it was probably more like 30 or 35. So um, the long ball has certainly changed uh, over the past decade for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and and you mentioned Raleigh Fingers. What was it like having him come in? I mean, here's this guy, obviously, you know, iconic looking with the handlebar mustache and, you know, such a key member of those those early 70s A's teams that were winning every year. Uh, what was it like bringing him in? Not too dissimilar from Sal Bando. I was really very well aware of Raleigh in his career, his impact on the teams that he played for. You know, the closer role back then was different. These guys were throwing, you know, seven, eight, nine outs at times to finish ball games. And, uh, yeah, he was just like that piece that we were missing that we knew could elevate our club to potentially being a World Series champion. And um, Raleigh, Raleigh was uh, very witty, um, great with the one-liners. I think he had the perfect personality for the back end of a bullpen guy, Um you know, if he would lose a game, he'd be the first one to kind of make a joke about himself and he'd come back the next day ready to go. And, uh, yeah, still still friends with Raleigh to this day. Get the chance to see him every year at Cooperstown when we get together for induction weekend. But he was a huge part of the success of the 1982 team, including uh, making it all the way to that World Series. I yeah. still think, we, you know, we lost Raleigh. We, we lost Raleigh to an injury there at late in that year in September and we didn't have him in the postseason. And would he have made a difference in that seven game series in the Cardinals? I, I think there's a good chance that he would have, but um, yeah, uh, the bottom line is we weren't able to get it done. The Cardinals went ahead, went ahead, went ahead and finished us off there with those last two wins in St. Louis. Yeah. Yeah. He certainly wouldn't have hurt your chances, put it that way. Right. And you also added Don Sutton, uh, I guess, at the trade deadline that year. He came on, you know, kind of midseason. What was it like bringing him in, you know, one of the aces from L.A.? Well, you know, Milwaukee was a blue-collar team. We didn't really have a a lot of national recognition, both in terms individually and collectively. Um, Don Sutton, I I, I used to joke, he brought a little Hollywood into our club. You know, he he had been a big part of the Dodgers' success and on that track to be a hall of famer um so he was a he was a welcome welcome addition to stabilize our rotation um it was just late i think the deadline used to be august 31st so we basically only had him the last last month of the season and you know lo and behold we go into baltimore the last weekend of the year with a three-game lead over the orioles in a four-game series on tap and the orioles won the first three games and now all of a sudden thinking that we were kind of a lock we had to win the last game of the season to advance to the playoffs and one of the best matchups you can imagine is Jim Palmer versus Don Sutton on the last day of the season to, to determine who advances to the to the, the postseason and Don had a great day Robin hit a couple of home runs off Jimmy Jim Palmer and uh, we were able to <clears throat> you know hold off the Orioles uh, all the way to the last day of the season yeah 
that's when there used to just be insane drama, you know, back before the wild card era, you know, you could, you could be the team yeah. all year, have a bad stretch. And all of a sudden, you know, you're fighting for it on those last couple of days. Yeah. And, and plus it was, um, and Earl, it was Earl Weaver's last game. He had announced he was going to retire after that season. So that added a little drama to that, to that last series as well. Oh, that's interesting. I forgot about that. That's right. Joel Tabelli came in. Um, and then, and, and yeah, so, so you win, uh, you win that game, you, you beat California three games to two, you bat over 300, you lose to St. Louis in seven, like you mentioned the Sud series, right. Uh, you know, the two beer yeah. capitals of America, um, and you bat 355 and I've read in more than one place that, you know, Daryl Porter was the absolute worthy, you know, kind of MVP for St. Louis. But if, if there had been any consideration for anybody else, you would have been on the short list, even though you guys lost. I mean, you had a hell of a series batting 355. Uh, tell me a little bit about that series. I mean, did, did you just, did you feel no nerves or, you know, what was that like for you? Um, it, you know, yeah. It had been a relatively short time from, you know, advancing through the minor leagues and getting to the major leagues and then finally feeling like you kind of belonged to, you know, I think I was 24, 25, and I found myself in the first World Series. Um, tremendously exciting. You know, we thought we had a really good chance. The series kind of went back and forth. Um, as far as we won the first game 10 to nothing, we were feeling pretty good about it, because especially since it was on the road. But it did eventually come up to us having to go back to St. Louis for game six and seven with a 3-2 lead. Um, game six was a marathon because of rain delays. I think we finished at one o'clock in the morning and they they won decisively and set up the showdown for game seven. And it was a close game. I remember it was a one-run game until late. They scored a couple inning, couple runs, I think, in the eighth inning to make it a 6-3 game instead of a 4-3 game. And then Suter, who uh, had been dominant the whole series, closed it out. And uh, we ended up coming up that, that one game short. One thing I'd add to that series, too, is that, you know, before um, the Daryl Porter, Ted Simmons had been traded for each other. And, you know, so one catcher for another, and then they both end up facing each other in a World Series, which was, you know, pretty amazing in terms of coincidences. And Teddy had a great series. He had a couple home runs in St. Louis, which I'm sure was meant a lot to him. And Porter obviously went on to get some really big hits and win the MVP of that series. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty fascinating, the, the swap. I mean, you almost feel bad for Ted Simmons. He was with St. Louis for so long, such a productive catcher there. And then the year he gets traded, he plays against them in the series and they win. That's a tough one. Sure, sure. Well, you know, in hindsight, I look back to that 82 team and, you know, gosh, how many Hall of Famers we had. We had Sutton and Fingers and 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 Simmons and Robin and myself. So, you know, we we had we had a lot of, a lot of talent. We, we had a, definitely a, a full cast and the Cardinals, they, they were they were just, you know, they they were who we thought they'd be. You know, they ran, they stole bases, they played defense, constant pressure. And uh, and they find they found a way to prevail in the end. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's funny. You look back at that series that struck me as a real kind of for that era, National League team and American League team. Right. Like you guys were hitting home runs and, you know, kind of, you know, piling up the runs and they were, you know, stealing bases and advancing guys and, you know, the shifts and all that stuff. Like it was very kind of that's what in my mind, American League versus National League baseball looked like. Yeah, it was it was a definite contrast in style. And I think the two opposites uh, uh 
personalities of those teams in terms of how they play and how they won showed up. You know, Whitey Herzog, incredible career, um, impacted the Royals and certainly his time in St. Louis. So uh, he knew what he needed to do. It was a big ballpark. The turf was fast. He found the athletes to kind of give him the best chance to be successful, and they figured out a way to win. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so then, and and so then the, the next couple of years and through your first like six or seven years, I mean, I, I looked back at it, you guys were like 130 games over 500 through your first half dozen years. I mean, it's, you know, it's tough because there's no wild card. So unless, you know, it's tough to always be beating out the Yankees or Baltimore or Boston, but you know, you guys are in the nineties in wins almost every year. Then things start to kind of slow down a little bit, 83, 84, 85. Renee Latchman comes in as uh, your manager um, replacing Harvey Keene. What, what was that like? Were you guys kind of thinking, Hey, things were going pretty well with this guy. Why are we switching things up? Or, you know, what, what was kind of behind that? Uh, well, I, I think, I don't remember all the particulars surrounding the, that transition in managers, uh, you know, definitely a contrast in terms of, you know, George had been a, you know, a veteran, older guy. Harvey was a veteran, older guy. Um, Latch was a, a young personality who um you know was definitely respected around the game and not surprisingly got an opportunity to manage uh we just we just didn't have the same team in the mid 80s that we had early in the 80s a lot of guys had transitioned and were getting older maybe their best years were behind them and we kind of had to uh find a way to re-establish ourselves and unfortunately it didn't happen under latch's watch um he didn't last particularly long. He he stayed in the game forever, but his tenure in Milwaukee was rather short lived. Yeah. And that was a year you, you basically had Tommy John surgery that year for your elbow. So you, you barely played. I mean, you played like 13 games. Um, so I guess you, your direct exposure to him probably wasn't that great, but you know, obviously you're in touch with your teammates and everything. Right. Well, um, you know, I don't know how many claims to fame that I have, but my recollection tells me I, I was the first position player to have Tommy John surgery. So oh. uh, I had had elbow trouble, troubles for a couple of years. You know, I pitched a lot when I was young. I'm not sure if that, uh, um, it was, if that was what I had to pay the price for later on, but um, yeah, I, I tried to rehab my elbow early in the year. didn't get any better. Team finally decided to get it done. So I, I was shut down pretty early in the year and uh, didn't get to play. had to wait, basically give up almost a whole season to, get that elbow thing right and thankfully i was able to come back pretty healthy in 85 yeah and and 85 george bamberger comes back but then in 86 he leaves and tom treblehorn comes in and and treblehorn's basically the manager for pretty much the rest of your run there until your last right. year um right. and and you guys have you got i mean you're you're kind of like a 500 ish team like 500 few games over a few games under you have that one crazy start in 80 seven where you win your first 13 games what's that like you know kind of coming out of the gates like that yeah well tom treblehorn another great baseball man a guy that i'm grateful that i had a chance to spend some time around and play for um he wanted to identify you know build an identity for our team that was similar to what whitey wanted to do back in the cardinal days um, we were young, we were aggressive, we hit and run, we, we bunted, we, we, we were, we were exciting, fast athletic team. And, you know, we got off to an incredible start. You know, you win your first 13 games and some of them in very dramatically, uh, we thought that we were 
going to be in, you know, you can't win the, you can't win the pennant in April, but you know, you start 13 and oh, you feel pretty good about it. What I remember was that we got to, after we lost our first game, we still played well for a while. I think we got to 20 and three. <laughs> so um, we got to May and just everything kind of crashed. We lost, we won 13 in a row in April. We lost 12 in a row in May. So we went from 20 and three to 20 and 15. We kind of gave them all back. And, uh, and then it was kind of a, a survival mode. We ended up having a still good year. Um, I think we were in the, in the hunt all the way to the last weekend. I think Toronto eventually became the, came out of that division, but yeah, it was an up and down year, definitely kind of a team streak, if you will. And, uh, but winning 13 games in a row to start a season, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget that. Yeah. And, and that's also speaking of streaks that year, you have a 39 game hitting streak, which, I mean, for anybody, you know, over watching baseball over the last 50 years, outside of Pete Rose's, which I think was 44, it's about as long as a hitting streak as anybody's had. Um, what's that like going through that? Because that's just such a different type of record. Like, that's just an everyday thing for, you know, a month and a half. What's it like going through that? Uh, yeah, you know, the, the, the personal chases after records, um, history, if you will, they're, they're different than, you know, trying to win and, and um chasing hardware if you will but uh you know we saw it with uh um judge a couple years ago i mean the yankees were trying to find a way to the postseason and his home run chase became historical in terms of the american league record and i for myself you know i i tried to enjoy it um you know you go through a streak like that six weeks in the big leagues without taking an offer i mean it was a lot of fun for me to experience but it happened um mostly in August and we were in a pennant race and every win mattered. So I think it helped that I was able to focus on trying to prioritize winning, um, keep the focus off myself as best as I could. It, it you know, it, it picked up kind of, uh, you know, a pulse of its own, you know, the Brewer record, I think was 24. Or so, you know, there was some attention around that when I got to that number and passed it. And then it kind of quieted for a little bit until I got to the 30s. And then, you know, 30s aren't very common for hitting streaks in the big leagues. So each day kind of became a little bit more exposed. And, uh, you know, you're you're talking to before and after about the streak and still trying to say the right things about your team trying to win games. Um, I had plenty of chances. The game I, I, I lost it on, um, you know, we were playing Cleveland. It turned out to be a nothing-nothing game into the 10th inning. I was 0 for 4. John Farrell, manager of the Red Sox for a long time and pitching coach for a couple of clubs, was a starting pitcher in that game that I went 0 for 4. So, but I, to finish my point on the end of the game, I'm 0 for 4. It's the bottom of 10th inning. It's nothing to nothing, and I'm on deck. And Rick Manning gets a base hit to drive in a run in a game we much needed to win in our home ballpark. And the crowd kind of went quiet as opposed to celebrating the win because the hitting streak was hanging in the balance of whether I was going to get that fifth at bat or not. So I uh, I had, you know, I'm glad I, I experienced that a little bit later on in my career where I was, you know, as if you did that as a 22, 23-year-old kid, it might have been overwhelming. But where I was at, I was able to enjoy it, focus on winning, and just kind of, ride it as long as I possibly could. Yeah, it's funny. I had read that Manning 
uh, was in fact even booed a little bit. And it's kind of like, <laughs> come on, man, I just hit a game-winning hit. <laughs> I know. No. That's pretty funny. Um, and and in those last couple of years in Milwaukee, a couple of interesting guys come through the locker room. Dave Parker is on the team for a year and really yeah. productive. Well, he, he's a big personality and a big time player, um, you know, had, you know, the, I don't know if you've seen the piece that they've done on him recently with his, you know, the physical struggles that he's been through later on in life. But um, I know that I've signed the petition to try to get him in the hall of fame because a lot of people feel he belongs. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. He's just one of those guys that, uh, not intimidated by being a new face in a locker room uh, within a matter of probably the first week. I think he had placed a nickname upon pretty much everybody in the room and uh, he had fun. But when it came time to playing between the white lines, he was, he was pretty intense. Really one of the best hitters that I had a chance to have as a teammate. Uh, A little small anecdote, something I remember, you know, Dave, you, you think of sluggers with big bats, Dave Parker used this skinny little bat. It didn't have a very big head on it, but he was all about bat speed and whip. And and man, he could really he could really make that thing fly. So he didn't he didn't have a, a long tenure in Milwaukee. And I remember when he got traded, they asked him what he was going to miss about Milwaukee, and he said the blankets in July. So <laughs> he he knew the climate in Milwaukee was was. We get that cold wind off the lake in July, and you feel like you were playing in February. But uh, yeah, I'm glad I had a chance to play with Dave for that for that short stint of his in Milwaukee. Right, that's a great line. I hadn't heard that. That's funny. Um, and the next year, Rick Dempsey joins the team uh, again. I think only for a year, but um, you know, here's a guy who you know, kind of iconic for winning world series in Baltimore and catching Jim Palmer and, and obviously having a, you know, huge series in uh, LA with the Dodgers in 88. Uh, what was Dempsey like, you know, towards the end of his career? He was, uh, he was a jokester, you know, I mean, when you look at him and really how his game, you know, it, it wouldn't be overly impressive. You wouldn't expect this guy to be an impactful player the way he was, but he found a way. Um, I think he was smart. I think the way he had a pitching staff certainly had some great arms to catch over there in Baltimore. Um, you know, he, his, his probably biggest or most famous comic uh, comical stick was when during rain delays, he was known for, you know, sliding on the, t- the tarps. But in one particular rain delay in Milwaukee, um, he went out and recreated the Jim Palmer to Robin Yao two home run game in the last game of the season in 1982. So uh, he goes out there and he's got a Palmer jersey on. And next thing you know, he's got a Yount jersey on. First, he simulates the pitch and then he goes to home plate and does the Robin Yao swing. And he ends up making his way around, probably sliding into every base on the turf. Um, yeah, Rick, Rick was just a guy who made sure the clubhouse stayed loose each and every day. And then he, he, you know, not too dissimilar from Parker when the, when the game got, when it was time to play, he was ready to play, but he was certainly going to have a lot of laughs, good day, bad day, indifferent day. He knew how to have fun at the ballpark. Yeah. He's a funny guy. I had the chance to interview him for this. And he told me that, you know, he, I think going into the 88 season, he thought his career was done. And, um, he's something like he's cutting the lawn at his house in LA. And he's like, you know, I want to go talk to the Dodgers and like gets in his car, drives down, sits down with, I don't know if it's Fred Claire or somebody like that. And basically says, if you sign me uh, and I make the roster, 
I will catch the final ball in, in you know, catch the final uh, pitch in the World Series and I will hand you the ball. And sure enough, you know, kind of an injury here and, a, you know, he's playing well in the postseason. And sure enough, he catches the final out and presents it to Fred Claire and says, here's the ball. Um, and I, th- I think ultimately that ball made it to Cooperstown and it's worth like, you know, five million dollars or something like that. Well, um, that was a very creative sales pitch and and then he backed it up. So that's pretty good. Yeah, pretty impressive. Um, and then, and then ultimately free agency has kicked in and you go to Toronto and in 92, they win the series and you go there in 93, basically replacing Dave Winfield as the DH. He's been there in 92. You go in there. Um, and you know, just tell me a little bit about you've been in Milwaukee forever. You're an icon in Milwaukee. You go to Toronto, they've won. Cito Gaston's their their manager. Tell me, you know, they've got a great locker room of talent. Tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of that transition, what that's like for you. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll just say that I, I was very hopeful that I would be one of the few players <clears throat> that was going to play a long time and play for one franchise. And so when that free agent year came up after the 92 season, I was <clears throat> fully engaged in trying to make that situation work. Um, the early 90s was when we really started to see the split of the big market, small market. Uh, there was just a tremendous gap in resources from a handful of teams to the majority of the rest of the teams. And we just couldn't find common ground. You know, I'd come off a couple of good years in 91 and 92, and um, we, we just couldn't get there. The Brewers went in a position, I don't think, to treat me fairly, if you will, given, you know, how long I played and some things that I was able to accomplish. So um, unexpectedly, I, I had to start to look at other options. And when the when the Blue Jays came forward, um, seeing what their situation was coming off of winning in 92, uh, being very impressed by both, you know, Paul Beeson and Pat Gillick, the leadership of the Blue Jays, um, the contract comparisons, were not even close and um i made that move it was a difficult move it was an emotional move and uh once i got my mind around that was was going to happen i just committed myself to making it work and it didn't go particularly well in the beginning i think i was really trying to prove myself early in the year to the blue jays and the blue jays fans and took a while for me to get settled in but eventually um I started to play better. We certainly, as you mentioned, had an incredible team. Most of the guys from the 92 team had come back, maybe minus Kelly Gruber and uh, Jimmy Key, Dave Winfield, obviously, as you mentioned, I kind of filled his role as a designated hitter. But we were really, really good. And um, Dave Stewart also came in that year as a free agent, picked up Ricky Henderson along the way, um, along with the current crop of guys like Joe Carter and Robbie Alomar and John Olerud and Devon White. Um, Dwayne Ward was an excellent closer. We, we just had a really, really solid team. We were trying to become the first team since, uh, I don't know, I think it was the Yankees went back to back somewhere, maybe along the way, um, in the, but we, we were, we really were determined to see if we could kind of be the next team to, to go ahead and repeat as champions. And eventually we found our way back to that winner circle. Yeah. And so that's that's a dramatic. So yeah, so you guys, you guys, uh, you know, win the American League East. You beat the White Sox um, in uh, in I think six games, right? I think you beat Correct. them in six. 
and then and then you play the Phillies, and that Phillies team is, <laughs> I mean, that's a crazy team, right? It's Mitch Williams and it's John Cruck and it's Darren Dalton. I mean, they've got some wild personalities on that team. Um, well, the, the 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 '93 Phillies reminded me of the '82 Brewers. Okay, they, yeah, just just a cast of characters. You know, you mentioned Dykstra and Dalton and Dave Hollins and you know Incavilia, just one after another. You know, Crucker over at first base. So they they were a loose team that just went out there and kind of winged it. They had beaten Atlanta. I I can't think. I think they beat Atlanta's pitching staff, you know, to get to the World Series, which was pretty impressive in itself. So um, I had never played in Philadelphia before. I had heard about their fan base and things to expect, and it was a little crazy. But um, yeah, we uh, we split early. We split the first two games at home. I think we went two out of three in Philadelphia, including a 15-14 game which was insane. Um, and to show you the, you know, how diverse baseball can be the night after we win 15 to 14 Schilling shuts us out two to nothing. So um, it, it's, you just can't predict what's ever going to happen in a baseball game, but we were able to go back home and finish it off with game six with one of the, one of the only, I think two home runs to end the world series. Um Joe Carter hitting the dramatic home run against Sips against Bex Williams uh, to get the Blue Jays that back-to-back championship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only other one was Bill Mazeroski for the Pirates back in like 1960 um, to to end the series on a home run. Yeah. So and and when Carter hits that homer, uh, you guys are down in Game Six. It's obviously the ninth, and uh, I think Ricky Henderson gets on, and then you single him over. So you're standing on base when Carter hits that home run. You've got as good a view as anybody in the building. What what was it like when when you you know kind of saw that ball come off his bat? Did you know? Yeah, well, you know, it was a. I think we were up like six to one or six to two in that game, you know, and they came back, back with a big inning. Dykstra had another big game, but we did find ourselves trailing, um, heading into the bottom of the ninth. And if you needed someone in the history of baseball to lead off a game or lead off an inning when you needed to score a run, um, Ricky Henderson would be the guy that almost everyone would shout out immediately. And sure enough, he worked a walk off uh, Mitch. Um, Devon White had like a 10 pitch at bat and before he, he lined out the center field. And I had never really done much off Mitch Williams in my career. I don't know what the numbers were, but I didn't really like facing him. And I was able to get a base hit. And so you're right. I was on first base um, talking to John Crook. We were, you know, I remember the little conversation was like, I said, this is incredible, man. I, can you believe this? You know, World Series game, bottom of the ninth. And he, and he wasn't really having that much fun in that moment because I think Mitch Williams caused a little trepidation for their team. And then sure enough, I had a really good view of Joe Swain. He kind of flat footed a low pitch and golfed it towards left field. And, and you have to remember, being on first base, if that ball hits the wall, if I can score, I'm the winning run. So I, I, I'm i kind of accelerating and making my turn at second base, and I see Incavilia kind of going towards the corner. And all of a sudden, he just stopped, and his, and his shoulders and his head kind of dropped. I didn't see the ball real well because of the light angle I was facing. But Incavilia's reaction let me know, and then immediately followed by the crowd's reaction. And then I was able to break it down around third and into home plate and then just wait for the bedlam to ensue, which it did. And, uh, you know, 
my 16th year in the major leagues, I finally got to what this podcast is all about, chasing that hardware of a World Series trophy. And uh, that was the moment. Um, it kind of makes you appreciate, you know, the work and the time and the toil and the injuries and the perseverance and the family sacrifices. Um, and you just you just really kind of breathe in that moment that uh, it's 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 an uncomfortable feeling in terms of sport obviously there's other things in life that are they're different in their meaning but in terms of being a professional athlete to win a world championship um, you realize that playing for that moment was worth it in every capacity imaginable yeah and you, and and meanwhile in that world series you bet 500 <laughs> and you're the mvp um, you hit, I think you're the first guy ever to hit two homers, two triples and two doubles or something like that in a world series. I mean, you, you, you know, go off obviously. Um, and that brings me to one thing. Um, I said at the, at the beginning, when I, when I introduced you on, I looked at, I extrapolated your, you, you played in 29 career playoff games, right? The, the two series, the win and the loss. And then, and then the one other playoff series, um, uh, you batted like 360 overall. I mean, obviously off the charts numbers, but the most fascinating thing to me is, um, you know, obviously you were always productive, you know, kind of in terms of uh, homers and RBIs, but your postseason record of six homers and 21 RBIs in those 29 games translates to 33 homers and 117 RBIs if if you were to play like a full season, which is basically off the charts for any one of your seasons ever. And this is all happening in the postseason with the spotlight on against the best teams. So that's when I say, you know, the argument could be made for, you know, the best postseason hitter of all time. Like the numbers back it up really is extraordinary. Uh, yeah, well, um, I appreciate you extrapolating the numbers like that. And, you know, <laughs> we, we figure out a way to, uh, to look at things in different lights. Baseball is a great game. And if, if you like numbers, you can do a lot of things, play around, match categories, you know, isolate certain things. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I didn't get to play a ton of postseason baseball. And I think that's maybe the one thing I, I thought about in 1993 was um, as a young player, 82 was a little bit of a blur. My memories weren't overly specific. And I really reminded myself heading into that postseason, both against the White Sox and the Phillies, to just really mentally take pictures and absorb it and have an appreciation for it <clears throat> because some guys are in there a lot and some guys aren't and uh, my opportunities were few and I'm not sure if that translated into being able to perform um, at a level I think sometimes it's just a matter of, are you going into the postseason hotter or are you going into the postseason cold and thankfully I was going into the 93 postseason in a good place and it translated to having Good performance over those two series, and ultimately the most important thing, I, I have a ring that says World Championship with a nice little blue jay on it in the in the middle there, you know. So that 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 that's uh, certainly one of my most prized possessions in terms of related to playing a professional sport. Yeah, oh for sure. Um, and then yeah. and then uh, after a couple more years in Toronto, you end up playing for Minnesota, and it's kind of funny. I've noticed over the years a lot of the guys from Minnesota end up finding their way back to Minnesota. You know, you and Morris and Winfield, obviously Herbeck's whole career was there, but Terry Steinbeck and Ron Davis and Kuzman. It's funny how like the Minnesota guys find their way to the twins at some point. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know if that's intentional on the club's part. Uh, um, I think a lot of guys that grew up in the state, you know, when you have your baseball, 
basketball dreams and ima you imagine wearing the uniform that kind of inspired you for me as a kid, you know, watching the twins in the sixties, the Harmon Killebrews and Tony Olivas and the Rod Carews and Jim Cotts. Um, yeah. I, 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 when my dream allowed me to get to the major leagues, it was wearing a twins uniform. So I think in the back of your mind, you're, you're thinking that that would be great if it ever, allowed itself to happen i thought i had lost my chance i mean when my when i finished my last year in toronto i was uh you know I was 39 years old i didn't know how much longer i was gonna play and it surprised the heck out of me that tom kelly wanted me to come back and be a part of a team that he thought was in position to have a resurgence um the twins had had a really good second half in uh in 95 he was excited about 96 and um, I had a couple other teams, but for me at that stage of my career, especially having won in Toronto, maybe took a little pressure off to maybe pick the best team. Um, coming home made perfect sense. And as far as Dave Winfield and Jack Morris and Steinbach and some of these other guys that had that chance, I would think that was kind of part of it too, that, you know, the twins, you know, that's that's kind of what first triggered some of your baseball passion as a kid. And and for me to come back kind of full circle, if you will, to finish my last three years as part of the Twins franchise franchise to come home. My family who had had to travel for, uh, you know, 18 years to watch me play to various places. Now they could get in the car and drive down to the Metrodome, you know, so it made a lot of sense in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess the one. Well, you would have to tell me, but I, I would figure that one of the big disappointments was early on, you're thinking, I'm going to play with Kirby Puckett, which would be pretty cool. And then he gets a coma and, you know, basically ends his career before before this even even began with you. Yeah. Well, I that that is spot on. <clears throat> I remember thinking after talking to the twins and Tom Kelly, OK, positives about the twins going home. Love Tom Kelly as a manager. Kirby Puckett's going to be my teammate. You know, that that was way up on criteria that I was looking at. And unfortunately, we had about a month together in spring training as teammates. And everything that I could have ever imagined about Kirby and his impact on a team in a clubhouse, I saw it 10 times over that spring, whether it was bringing in the, you know, the bags of 50 egg McMuffins in the morning, taking care of the clubhouse kids, being the loudest voice each and every day, that undeniable, you know, that the undeniable laughter that he would bring. Um, it was so much fun that spring, and we were super excited. I remember, like, the day before he got the glaucoma diagnosis after waking up with a dark spot on his eye. Um, you know, he had he had had a game where, you know, he had, like, four line drives. He had two balls off the batter's eye. I mean, he was just rolling. You know, we were, we were so excited about the start of that season, and then, you know, um, literally, you know, waking up one day and having your profession taken away from you. And I always remember, you know, we had hoped that it was going to be a, something that was fixable, but it became apparent that it wasn't. Kirby Puckett had played his last game. And uh, it wasn't about me not being able to play with Kirby Puckett. It was about Kirby Puckett not being able to play anymore. And uh, it was a tough time for Twins fans, probably the most recognizable athlete in Minnesota sports history. I mean, you have people like Kevin Garnett and maybe back in the old days, Fran Tarkington and some other people. But Kirby's the top of a lot of people's list. And that was a really sad chapter um, to watch him have to endure that. But he handled it like a champ. 
said he'd be fine, you know, took the high road, had positive things to say, considered himself the luckiest man on the earth, you know, um, echoing the words of Lou Gehrig. And um, yeah, so glad for that one month, but I wish it would have been a lot more. Yeah, oh, for sure. Um yeah. And uh, and 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 so obviously you 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 played for Minnesota for three years. You get your three thousandth hit in in a Twins uniform, and then you retire after ninety eight. Yeah. And you you go into coaching and you're doing some fielding and base running instruction stuff. And then you become the manager of the Twins when Garden Hire retires. You had been a bench coach for Tom Kelly for a couple of years. Um, you become the manager. You you manage for four years. You're the manager of the year one year, two thousand seventeen. What was it like? you know, obviously you were a player and now you're managing, you know, 23 year olds when you're in your, you know, whatever fifties or sixties, what was it like? What, what was the biggest difference you saw between, you know, kind of what you remembered and then what you saw? Well, you know, my post playing days were, I look back and I, I just had a lot of uncertainty on what I really wanted to do. I mean, I tried the coaching thing. I did a little broadcasting, did the player development, which I really liked. Um, I like love being around all the young kids. The minor league parks didn't bother me. Um, I did have another. I had one year as a hitting coach in Seattle along the way, which didn't go particularly well. Um, I thought I had lost my chance to manage. Um, but lo and behold, it came around a little bit later on in life. And Terry Ryan, who I have the utmost respect for, was the general manager of the Twins. Brought me in as one of the candidates when uh, Ron Gardner hire was going to step down. And um, I was excited. You know, I, I I really was tremendously elated when they chose me to, to take on that role. What helped me was, even though I was a little bit older for a first time manager in the big leagues, most of the guys in the twins that were in the big leagues, I had had in the minor leagues during their developmental years. So I had a pretty good rapport and reputation. And, uh, you know, just relationship with these guys. And I thought I knew the game well enough. I knew that handling pitching was probably going to be the most challenging part. Um, and I, I just kind of dedicated myself, particularly that first year before the spring training started, invest into whatever information I had, whether it was the bios of players, learning about their families. Analytics was starting to become more and more prevalent. I knew I had to study that to some degree. But I was excited. And uh, – my my uh my really what i what i really wanted to do was try to help develop these young men into accountable men with integrity that i always thought if you get a better man you're going to get a better player and um four years i managed two years weren't too good and two years were re actually quite good so um yeah, I, I'm i'm grateful for the experience i got to manage the minnesota twins for four years you know so um, I would have liked to have done it a little bit longer. And when we brought in new new people in our front office, um, they fully had the right to go ahead and explore someone that they wanted to set up for a little bit longer term as that manager. They picked a great manager in Rocco Bodelli. The Twins have done very, very well over the last handful of years. But with all that being said, man, I, I had the chance to do it. I loved it. And uh, hopefully was able to have some good influence on the people I was fortunate enough to manage. Yeah. And and uh, was there, you know, you've obviously played for some iconic managers over the years. Were there any one or two guys who really kind of influenced the way you managed or did you, you know, kind of borrow from all or none? I borrowed a lot from, I think, pretty much everybody. That, that specifically to go to each guy would be tough. I knew that Harvey Keene um, 
really wanted his players to be themselves. Don't put too many boundaries on how they express themselves or what they want to music they want to listen to. Um, I learned from Cito Gaston just the whole idea of having your players back and showing them the respect that they deserved as your players. And hopefully it came back to you because of that two-way street. Tom Kelly was a tremendous visionary in game of how he could see a game unfolding, an ability to work a game from back to front as opposed to front to back. Um, the way that he was firm with younger players and, and uh, never really tried to get overly friendly with his guys. You know, you, you, you don't want to be their best friend. You kind of want to have an authoritative position if you're going to respect, uh, have their respect in terms of leadership. So, yeah, I, I think I learned a little bit from all of them, tried to use my own style. I didn't want to try to copy anybody because you still have to be yourself. But certainly th things that you saw from other people that led to their success, you would have been foolish not to try to at least incorporate somewhat into how you ran your team. Sure, sure. Um, well, that, and that that brings me to, I always, you know, kind of am intrigued by this part. Uh, you know, obviously legendary career, Hall of Fame career, you know, one of the top 10 hitters in terms of hits of all time. Was there a pitcher or pitchers who just drove you crazy? I mean, I know they're all tough. They're all in the majors. But was there like one or two guys who, for whatever reason, had your number? Didn't even have to be an all-star or a Hall of Famer. Just Well, it's funny because I, almost everybody, I'll tell you, Nolan Ryan was tough. And I really literally was scared of him when I was when I first got to the big leagues. You know, he uh, I was a leadoff hitter. And, you know, you know, Nolan had after he would throw his last warm up pitch. He would always walk over to the third base line. He would stomp his foot along the grass to make, you know, to see if it was wet or dry or whatever, in case he had to make a play off the mound. And then he would intently glaze, gaze at the leadoff hitter. Like, don't you think about money, you know? So it was a direct message. And, and it, got in, it got in my head a few times like that. Um, he'd be on my list only because he's – he threw harder. He had a great curveball. Um, but some of the some of the lesser names that people might be a little bit surprised. Um, Jose Rijo, uh, when he had a kind of he had a he had a slider that, that I just didn't see. I think he was the first guy I ever struck out three times in a row against. Um, Lenny Barker back in for the Cleveland days. He he was a holder of a perfect game. He was tough. Um, a more a more well-known name, a Hall of Famer that gave me fits for a long time was Mike Messina. Mm. And um, I told him when he got to the Hall of Fame, I said that you might have been the least favorite guy I ever wanted to face. And he asked me why. And I said, well, for one, you're a Stanford grad. And I think that your intelligence on the mound was a big part of your success. I said, I was able to have somewhat of predictability of what I would look for off certain pitchers in certain counts and situations. I said, I'd never could, I could never think with you, you know, I'd face you one time and I'd see two seamers and curveballs, And the next time it would be four seamers and changeups and sliders and cutters. And he just never pitched in patterns. I, I, um, I really thought he was a difficult at bat mainly because you had to try to account for so many things, which was nearly impossible. And the other name that I would say that, I, that was really, really difficult was, was Pedro um, Martinez. Um, Three-plus pitches, threw tremendously hard, 
change up breaking ball were, you know, were probably eight on a scale of eight in terms of rating their pitches. I always looked off speed for him because at least I thought I had a two out of three chance of getting a pitch as opposed to that fastball. Um, but I know that I never really was able to do very much. I faced a lot of great guys, but there, there's a little sampling of some of the guys that gave me trouble. Sure. And, and was there any hitter, either growing up, like you mentioned, Oliva and Carew and Killebrew, were there any sure. hitters even when you were in the majors where you looked at them and you're like, oh, that's a great swing or, you know, whatever, that I admire that guy's hitting ability? Oh, man. Um, well, you know, obviously the guys that win batting titles and things like that, you, you're always impressed by. Um, we would play against Tony Gwynn in spring training out there in Arizona. And I play. I was playing third base, and it was like he was toying with me. You know, I tried to plug the five hole, and he hit it down the line. I'd move over a little bit, and he hit in the five hole. Um, <laughs> I used to like to go. People take batting practice. Uh, guys that I enjoyed, you know, um, Tony, Tony being one of those guys. But I really liked what Edgar Martinez, his style of hitting was. He was that guy who um, never seemed to get out of balance. He could work that right center field gap as well as anybody, especially on off-speed pitches, sliders, or whatever. But just when you thought you'd have him set up for a fastball in, you know, he just stayed behind the ball so well, and he quick snatch went out of the inside and hit a homer. But he was probably one of the best right-handed hitters that I was able to play against. Um, you know, as I got near retirement, some of the younger younger guys coming in, you know, Manny Ramirez, I thought was was a tremendous hitter. Um, Albert Pujols, of course, guys that I had a chance to maybe barely overlap with, but certainly recognized early on that these guys were going to be special Hall of Fame type players. Yeah, yeah. Well, one guy who uh, who watched you, I this this is this is about as big a compliment as a hitter can get, I think. Um, somebody asked Ted Williams what he saw when he watched you, and he said, "I see Joe DiMaggio." That must have been pretty cool when you heard that. I saved that clip. <laughs> That's, you know, um, I, I don't know if I'll tell this story very well, but um, the first time I, I met Ted was I was I, I was invited to a, a banquet. I think it might have been the the, the bat dinner, uh, baseball assistance team dinner in New York. And whatever the event was, the, the I was being recognized for community things at this particular bank and banquet. And I was the only current player that was going to be at the head table. Um, DiMaggio and Ted Williams, Johnny Vandermeer, holder of two, two no hitters were, were three of the other guests. So they had a little gathering behind the stage before. And when I walked into this little area, DiMaggio and Williams were at a table. And Ted Williams gives me a double take as I walk in and gets up and comes rushing over to me and wanted to talk to me about my swing. So I, I'm scared to death to meet Ted Williams, Joe DiMaggio as well. But then Ted, Ted he wiggles, you know, tell me, tell me what you're, what you think about when you swing, you know? And, and when I see your swing, I see this and he just went out, he knew my swing better than I knew my swing. And so you can imagine my respect of the game and where I held Ted Williams in the history of the game. And then for him to want to talk to me about my swing was one of the most incredible conversations that I was ever a part of. I really, I really didn't even have to say very much or felt like I could say very much, but it meant a lot to me that uh, Ted would want to would talk to me about 
my approach to hitting. So something I'll always remember. Yeah. How cool is that? God, that is awesome. I was just going to add that, that incredible. I was at that, at the, at the game in Fenway at the all-star game when Ted was introduced and came out on the field in the golf cart, you know, we had the hundred best players of the century or whoever it was. Um, so yeah, that, you know, being a part of that and, and watching just the overflowing love for Ted that day and being in that little semicircle behind the mound, that that's the other Ted, Ted Williams stories that I'll, that I'll, that I'll never forget. That's awesome. That, that's so cool. What a legend. Um, well, yeah. well, thank you so much for taking the time. I mean, this, this has obviously been awesome for me to listen to. And, you know, it's great hearing about, you know, growing up in St. Paul and the U days and, uh, you know, yeah. Minnesota days and, and obviously the iconic career with Milwaukee, Toronto and Minnesota. Uh, been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for coming on Chasing Hardware. I appreciate it, man. It's good to reminisce. I hope I didn't get too long winded on some of those answers, but uh, uh, appreciate you having me on. Uh, my pleasure. It's, it's been great. Thanks again, Paul. Take care. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? Ew, seriously. They squeeze the grease out of the wool and process it with chemicals, and then you eat it. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I got rid of products I didn't want anywhere near my body. I found that many multivitamins contain high amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and even lacked some of the nutrients we actually needed. So what did I do? At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. Ritual's products are made traceable, meaning we share the science and sourcing for every single ingredient. For example, our vegan vitamin D3 comes from sustainably harvested lichen in Nottingham, England, not sheep. We trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. See for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast.